Welcome back to the American History Podcast. In this episode, it will be another Politicast, this time focusing on campaigns and elections in America. Now, in the United States, elections are highly routinized events that occur on very fixed days. They're subject to specific rules. National presidential elections take place every four years on the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November. So, in other words, just that first Tuesday. And congressional elections are held every two years, also on that first Tuesday in November. And congressional elections that don't coincide with the presidential election are often called midterm elections. Localities and states can choose when to hold their elections. Most Americans have the opportunity to vote in several elections each year. And voting in elections is the most common form of political participation in America. Now, in the American federal system, the responsibility of running elections is decentralized. So that's mostly the responsibility of the state and local governments. Elections are administered by the state, county, city election boards. They're then responsible for establishing and staffing all the polling places. And they have to process all mail-in ballots, verify eligibility of voters. (coughs) And state laws influence who may vote, how they vote, where they vote. And, for example, states have to choose whether to require photo ID to vote and whether or not to allow their residents to cast a ballot by mail. Or if they can vote early at an official polling place and to register to vote and vote on the same day. Election season tends to begin with uh, the primary elections, which are held to select the party's candidates for the general election. And when we talked about political parties in the last episode... And primary elections are used in races for offices at the national, state, and often local levels as well. They're used to select the best candidate to represent the political party in the general election. So primary elections are the races where Democrats compete against uh, other Democrats and Republicans against other Republicans, except in states that have the top two primaries. And when that's the case... Candidates from all parties run against each other in the top two face off in the general election. So California and Washington State use that method. And the winners of primary elections, they face each other at the par- as their party's nominees in the general election, which is a regularly scheduled election involving most districts in the nation or state. And the voters choose all the office holders. So in the U.S., general elections for national office and most state and local offices are held on that first Tuesday, like I mentioned, every four years for presidential. So the winner of the general election is then elected to office for a specific term. And the U.S. is one of the few countries in the world to hold primary elections. And so in most countries, nominations of candidates are controlled completely by the party officials, as they once were in the U.S., And primary elections were introduced at the turn of the 20th century by reformers who hoped to weaken the power of party leaders. And so the introduction of primary elections for the first time allowed voters rather than the party elites to pick the candidates to compete in the general election. And in states with closed primaries, only registered members of a political party can vote in a primary election to select that party's candidates. States with open primaries allow all registered voters, including independents, to choose the part, which party's primary they will participate in. Mm. 
So on the surface, the basic idea of how an election works may seem simple. Voters select their preferred candidate on the ballot, votes are counted, and the candidate with the most votes wins the election. But there are actually many possible variations in how people vote and how the votes are counted. So we take the system for granted in the U.S., but there are three different ways that ballots are counted and aggregated in countries using democratic elections. So in some countries, a candidate must receive an absolute majority, which is that 50% plus one, of all the votes cast in the relevant district in order to win the election. Now, this type of electoral system is called a majority system. So majority systems usually include a provision for a runoff election, which takes place between the two top candidates because if the initial race draws several candidates, there's little chance that anyone is going to receive a majority. In some other countries, uh, including the United States, candidates for office need not win an absolute majority of the votes cast to win an election. So instead, victory is awarded to the candidates who receive the most votes, regardless of the actual percentage this represents. So a candidate receiving 50% or even 30% of the popular vote can win if no other candidate receives more votes. This type of electoral system is called a plurality system. And it's used in most elections in the United States. Now, the winning candidate needs to win a plurality, which is the most but not necessarily a majority, of the votes cast in the election. And these voting rules are commonly uh, referred to as winner-take-all. Back in the 2016 Republican, Republican primaries, for example, uh, Donald Trump was frequently referred to by the media as the winner, but in most states he only won around 35% of the vote because there were three or more candidates in the race. Trump also did not win a majority of the popular vote in the general election. <clears throat> and most advanced democracies use a third type of electoral system called proportional representation. So under these rules, competing political parties, they're awarded legislative seats in rough proportion to the percentage of popular votes that each party wins. Now, a party that wins 30% of the popular vote will receive roughly 30% of the seats in the parliament or what other representative body is being elected here. So proportional representation benefits smaller groups and third parties. Like here in the United States, we have the Green Party, Libertarian Party, even uh, far-right populist parties because it allows a party to win legislative seats with fewer votes than would be required under a majority or plurality system. And a party that wins 10% of the national vote might win 10% of the parliamentary seats. Now, in the United States, though, a party that wins 10% of the vote would probably win no seats in Congress because they give very small parties very little chance of success. So plurality and majority systems tend to reduce the number of political parties that can hold power. So this is one of the reasons that the United States has only had two significant political parties throughout its history. Now, before the 1890s, voters would cast ballots according to the political parties. Each party printed its own election ballots, listed only its own candidates for each office, and hired party workers to distribute the ballots at the polls. And because voters had to choose which party's ballot to use, it was very difficult for a voter to cast anything other than a straight ticket vote. So you would select the candidates from the same political party for all offices on the ballot. 
and the advent of new neutral ballot at the turn of the 20th century brought a significant change to the electoral procedure. So the new ballot called the Australian ballot or a long ballot was prepared and administered by the government rather than the political parties. So each ballot was identical and included the names of all candidates running for public office. And this ballot reform made it possible for voters to make their choices on the merits of the individual candidates rather than the overall party and to have their choice of candidates be private. So because all candidates for the same office now appear on the same ballot, voters were no longer forced to choose straight ticket voting. And so this practice gave rise to the phenomenon of split ticket voting, where voters may vote for, like, say, a Democrat for Senate and a Republican for governor. And if a voter supports candidates from more than one party in the same election, he is said to be casting a split ticket vote. And split ticket voting for national elections is far less common today than it was in the 70s and 80s, 1970s and 80s. And today, most people cast straight ticket ballots or vote for candidates of the same political party for Congress and the president. So in the United States, it is the state and county governments, not the federal government, that run elections and print the voting ballots. And some counties may use paper ballots, while most now use electronic or computerized voting systems. And the controversial presidential election back in 2000 led to a closer look at different ballot forms and voting systems used across all the three county, 3,000 counties in the United States. In 2000, the margin of victory for the Republican George W. Bush over the Democrat Al Gore in Florida was so small that the state ordered a recount. And careful examination of the results re- revealed that the punch card voting machines and butterfly ballot used in Florida had led to many voting and counting errors. And so the controversy made its way to the Supreme Court, which effectively reversed Florida's recount order awarding the presidency to Bush. And in the wake of this election, Congress adopted the HAVA Act, Help Americans Vote Act, in 2003, requires the states to use computerized voter registration databases. And critics of HAVA fear that these systems might be vulnerable to unauthorized use or hacking. In 2016, 21 states experienced intrusion by Russian hackers in their computerized state election systems, although to date, there's no evidence that the ballots were actually changed. So in Illinois, hackers viewed 300,000 active Illinois voter registration records, like names, addresses, birth dates, voting history, etc., but they were unable to modify the data. So in the past, computerized voting machines have generally worked well and significantly updated the election system in America, but all computerized systems have vulnerabilities. And protecting state and county election systems from hackers is a new priority for reform. So the boundaries for some elected offices are pretty straightforward. All eligible U.S. citizens 18 years and older may vote for president. All eligible residents of each state may vote for the state's governor and two U.S. senators. Other political offices, like members of the U.S. House and state lawmakers, they're elected from geographic legislative districts whose boundaries are drawn by the state governments, either the legislatures or an independent commission or the courts. So the boundaries uh, for congressional and state legislative districts, they're redrawn every 10 years to reflect population changes as determined by the U.S. Census. And the process of redrawing district boundaries is called redistricting. 
So the geographic shape of legislative district boundaries is influenced by a lot of factors, including population size, existing government boundaries like counties, and federal court decisions have played a major role in how the districts are drawn. So in 1962, there was a case, uh, Baker versus Carr, where the Supreme Court ruled the federal courts can intervene on the issue of drawing legislative districts. And so in a series of decisions in 1963 and 64, Court said legislative districts for Congress and state legislatures have to include roughly equal populations to go with the principle of one person, one vote. Prior to that, many state districts uh, were simply county boundaries, with each county electing one representative regardless of the population of the county. And drawing the districts with roughly equal populations shifted power from rural areas to urban centers where the population was higher. And today, average U.S. house districts have roughly 700,000 people, which in 1800, uh, it was only 30,000. State legislative districts um, vary from a few thousand people in some states to nearly a million, like in the California Senate. And during the 1980s, the Supreme Court also declared that legislative districts should, and so far as possible, be contiguous, compact, and consistent with existing political subdivisions. So, Despite all these legal requirements, state lawmakers who are responsible for drawing the district boundaries for Congress and state legislatures, they regularly seek to influence electoral outcomes to favor one political party over another or incumbents over challengers. So the strategy of drawing the districts to favor a political party is called gerrymandering. So uh, a lot of gerrymandering is named for... uh, a 19th century Massachusetts governor named Elbridge Jerry. He was alleged to have designed an odd-shaped district in the shape of a salamander to promote his party's interests. And the principle behind gerrymandering is pretty simple. Different populations of voters residing in geographically defined districts can produce different electoral results. You know? So state lawmakers theoretically can dilute the group's voting power and prevent it from electing a representative in any district, and that technique is called cracking. So alternatively, by concentrating the members of a party in as few districts as possible, state lawmakers can try to ensure their opponents will elect as few representatives as possible, which is called packing. And very controversial but widespread practice of gerrymandering has created a lot of safe districts in Congress and state legislatures uh, where incumbents rarely face a serious challenger. And so this contributes to the frequency with which members of Congress are re-elected in landslide elections. So in 2008, 86% of senators and 93% of House members won re-election, but a historic 56 members did not even run for re-election. And so when candidates do not face serious challengers in elections, there is concern that public officials will not represent the interests of the people and will instead make laws that benefit special interests. So... To address the problem, some states use nonpartisan redistricting boards or commissions where the boundaries are drawn not to advantage one party over the other, and the partisanship of voters in the district is not a consideration in drawing geographic boundaries. So partisan gerrymandering, where you draw districts to advantage one party over another, uh, recently has become very controversial. Critics of the practice claim that these techniques go against the principle of one person, one vote. Others believe that the process of legislative redistricting is by nature political. 
and other parties believe that the process of legislative districting is by nature political. Parties strategically drawing districts to gain an advantage is just part of the game. So they also contend there is no agreed upon standard for too much partisan tilt in these decisions. So this controversy has found its way into the courts. And so, for example... Legislative districts drawn by the Republican state legislature in Pennsylvania were ruled unconstitutional in 2018 because of gerrymandering. And the U.S. Supreme Court took up the matter in Gill versus Wetford, where Democratic voters of a Wisconsin district sued to overturn the, alleged, the allegedly gerrymandered state district map. So, and in June 2018, the court unanimously agreed to send the case back to the district court, delaying the Supreme Court action on partisan gerrymandering for at least another term. So the federal court, it's often, or the federal government, sorry, it's often supported congressional districts made up primarily minority group members, which is a practice intended to increase the number of African Americans and Latinos elected to public office in accordance with the 1965 Voting Rights Act. Beginning with the 1993 case of Shaw versus Reno, however, the Supreme Court has generally opposed efforts to force the creation of majority minority districts. And the court has asserted that districting based exclusively on race ethnicity is unlawful. However, most majority minority districts in the United States occur naturally in states and geographic areas with large minority populations. And most African Americans in Congress, for example, are elected from districts with a majority of African American voters. And presidential elections have special rules because they're the only public office in the U.S. elected by all American citizens, though the president is technically elected by the Electoral College, not direct popular voted citizens. And moreover, presidential candidates from the two major parties are officially nominated at the party's national conventions following a series of state-by-state primary elections and caucuses to select delegates to the conventions. While primary elections are also used to... Select candidates in congressional and other type of elections. The National Convention Delegate System for nominating candidates is unique to presidential elections. So how do we pick presidential candidates in the United States? Before the presidential election every four years, the parties must select candidates to represent them in the general election. And the process starts with primary elections and caucuses that are held by the major political parties to choose a candidate who will face the nominee from the other major party during the general election. Most states hold primary elections, but about one-third use caucuses instead. And caucuses are basically party business meetings. So at the lowest level, precinct caucuses are meetings of registered voters within a local geographic area who are members of the same political party. And there are hundreds of precinct caucuses in each state. The purpose of these is to elect delegates to county assemblies. Same process is repeated for county caucuses where they elect members to represent their preferences at the district caucuses and finally for the state assembly. So if members of a local precinct caucus may prefer like Bernie Sanders for president, then the delegates representing that precinct at the county, district, and state caucuses would continue to cast votes for Sanders. So citizens attending local caucuses end up electing delegates for statewide conventions which is where delegates to the National Party Conventions are chosen. And compared to primary elections, caucuses give party leaders and activists a larger role in selecting candidates for public office. 
Candidate strategies uh, to win states holding primaries are di- very different than for states using caucuses. And that's because voter turnout in caucuses tends to be much lower than in primary elections. So television and mass media campaigns typically are used to campaign in primary states, while face-to-face and retail politics are more common in caucus states. And the Iowa caucuses are especially famous. It's the first state to select presidential candidates in the calendar year, uh, as is the New Hampshire primary, the second election in that presidential nomination process. So both the Iowa caucus and New Hampshire primary are characterized by retail politics, where presidential candidates spend a great deal of time uh, in the state to meet with voters face-to-face. So like the general elections, early primaries and caucuses tend to be highly contested with high levels of mass media coverage and intensive voter mobilization drives. The primaries and caucuses traditionally begin in January of a presidential election year and end in June with the state elections roughly every two weeks. Iowa and New Hampshire's disproportionate role in picking presidential candidates is due to their being the first states to cast votes in the caucuses and primaries. These early voting states are important because they can help candidates gain momentum by securing national media attention, money in the form of campaign contributions, and higher ratings in public opinion polls. Candidates that perform well in Iowa caucuses and New Hampshire primary send signals to voters in states holding later primaries and caucuses that a candidate is viable or can win the nomination, and electable, they can win the general election. So a candidate who performs better than expected in Iowa and New Hampshire will usually be able to win public support and media coverage for subsequent races. A candidate who fares poorly in these two states may be written off as a loser and drop out of the race. Back in 2016, Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders beat expectations by both placing second in the Iowa caucuses and first in the New Hampshire primary. These early wins helped solidify Trump's nomination for the Republican Party ticket and indicated that Sanders would be a viable rival rival of Clinton throughout the Democratic Party nomination. And today, presidential nomination has become front-loaded, with states vying to increase their political influence by holding their nomination nominating processes earlier in the calendar year in order to receive more attention from candidates and the media. <clears throat> So the result of the presidential primary or caucus determines how each state's delegates will vote at their party's national convention. So the Democratic Party requires that state presidential primaries allocate delegates on the basis of proportional representation. Democratic candidates win delegates in rough proportion to their percentage in the primary vote. The Republican Party does not require this, but many states now use that system. So a few states use the winner-take-all system where candidates with the most votes win all the party's delegates in that state. And when the primaries and caucuses are concluded, it is usually clear which candidates have won their party's nominations. Now, for more than 50 years after America's founding, presidential nominations are controlled or were controlled by each party's congressional caucus. So all the party's members in the House and the Senate. And critics referred to this process as the King Caucus and charged that it did not fairly represent the views of party members throughout the nation. So thus, King Caucus process was replaced by the system of national party conventions. 
So as it developed over the next century, the convention became the decisive institution in the presidential nominating processes of the two major parties. Composed of delegates from each state to who pledged loyalty to different presidential candidates, the convention was a deliberate body in which party elites argued, negotiated, and eventually chose a single candidate to support. The size of a state's delegation depended on the state's population, and each delegate was allowed one vote for the purpose of nominating the party's presidential and vice presidential candidates. Between the 1830s and World War II, delegates to the National Party Conventions were selected by a state's party leaders. These individuals were public officials, political activists, and party notables from all regions of the state, representing most major party factions. Over time, reformers viewed the convention as a symbol of rule by party elites and the affluent. Around the turn of the 20th century, many states adopted direct primary elections to choose presidential candidates, enabling average citizens to have a voice in picking their president. So as we saw earlier in the discussion, uh, today the nomination is determined by a series of primary elections and caucuses held in all 50 states during the months prior to the party's national convention. These elections determine how each state's convention delegates will vote. Candidates usually arrive at the convention knowing who has enough delegate support in hand to assure a victory in the first round of balloting. If one candidate does not win a majority of delegates, a second ballot is issued and delegates can choose to vote for a different candidate. Superdelegates are party elites who are not bound to the voting results in their state primaries and can vote as they wish. Now, at the 2016 DNC, uh, most superdelegates backed Hillary Clinton, giving her a significant advantage over Bernie Sanders, despite his strong support among voters. And the Republican Party does not use superdelegates, and the practice of reserving delegates for the party elite is increasingly controversial in the Democratic Party. So, even though the party convention no longer controls presidential nominations, it still has a number of important tasks. The convention makes the rules concerning delegate selection and future presidential primary elections. 1972, for example, the Democratic Party adopted rules requiring convention delegates to be broadly representative of the party's membership in terms of race and gender. Another important task for the convention is the drafting of a party platform, a statement of principles and pledges around which the delegates can unite. Most importantly, the convention is an opportunity for the party to showcase its candidate in anticipation of the upcoming general election. On a national stage, with the television camels rolling, the presidential and vice presidential nominees deliver acceptance speeches. And these speeches are opportunities for the nominees to begin their formal general election campaigns and make a positive impression on the media. So after they are officially nominated at the party convention, presidential candidates compete in the general election. As noted before, presidential election differs from other elections in an important way. The voters do not directly elect the president. In the early history of popular voting, nations often made use of indirect elections, and in these elections, voters would choose the members of an intermediate body. These members would, in turn, select public officials. The last vestige of this procedure in the U.S. is the Electoral College the group of electors who formally select the president and vice president of the United States. When Americans go to the polls on election day, they're technically not voting directly for presidential candidates, even though they mark ballots as such. They're instead choosing among slates of electors selected by each party in the state and pledged, if elected, 
to support that party's presidential candidate. Electors are allocated to each state based on the size of the state's congressional delegation. So there are two senators plus however many House members that state has. Larger population states thus have more votes in the Electoral College. North Dakota, for example, has three votes in the Electoral College, while California has 55. So the President of the United States is the winner of the Electoral College, the candidate who wins at least 270 of the college's 538 votes, not necessarily the candidate with the most votes from the people. So in part, it's because the Electoral College and most elections in the U.S. are governed by plurality, winner-take-all rules. With only two exceptions, each state awards all of its electors to the candidate who receives the most votes in the state. So in 2016, Trump received all 29 of Florida's electoral votes, even though he only won 49% of the votes in the state. And since electoral votes are won on a state-by-state basis, it is mathematically possible for a candidate who receives the most popular votes nationwide to fail to carry states whose electoral votes would add up to a majority. And four times this has happened. So in 1876, Rutherford B. Hayes, uh, he was the winner in the college despite receiving less popular votes than Samuel Tilden. In 1888, Grover Cleveland, he got more than Benjamin Harrison, uh, popular votes, you know, but Cleveland got fewer electoral votes. The third was in 2000, George W. Bush over Al Gore. And then the fourth was Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton. So because of these cases where the popular vote winner has lost the election, calls for eliminating the Electoral College and using a national popular vote for president are widespread. And public opinion polls continue to show that most Americans prefer a direct election for the president. Replacing the Electoral College with another system would require a constitutional amendment that most agree would be extremely difficult to pass. However, reform is still possible since the Constitution allows states to choose the method of selecting presidential electors. One example of a recent attempt to reform the Electoral College is the National Popular Vote Plan, which has been introduced and adopted in a number of state legislatures. And under the proposed rule change, a state's Electoral College votes would go to the candidate who won the national popular vote, not the candidate with the plurality of votes in that specific state. So states would enter a compact with other states making the same change, which would go into effect when a number of states representing a majority in the Electoral College approved it. So the reform would then bypass the Electoral College without the need for an amendment to the U.S. Constitution. And so as of 2018, there's been 10 states plus Washington, D.C. for a total of 165 electoral college votes that have enacted the bill into law. And the bill would take effect when enacted by states possessing an additional 105 electoral votes to pass the law. So another limitation in the electoral college system is that some presidents do not have widespread support. Few democracies in the world would elect a president who does not win a majority of the popular vote. Since the Civil War, roughly one-third of American presidents have been elected with only a plurality. So, one of the most notable was Abraham Lincoln. Uh, Bill Clinton, as well. Abraham Lincoln got just 40%. Bill Clinton got 43%. uh, Trump with 46%. 
So it often happens when a third-party candidate receives a significant percentage of votes. If the third-party candidate is more closely allied ideologically with the losing major-party candidate, then a majority of voters may not support the winning presidential candidate. And beyond presidential and congressional elections, 24 states also provide for the initiative process. And we talked about initiatives and referendums and everything in past podcasts, so I'm not going to go too much into these. But initiative and referendum are both ballot measures. They're examples of direct democracy. They allow voters to govern directly and make laws without intervention by government officials or the political parties. And ballot measure campaigns often involve high spending by proponents and opponents and mass media campaigns that can rival those of congressional and presidential candidates within a state. So just to recap, in case you forgot, maybe what's an initiative and what's a referendum. Ballot initiative is proposed law or policy change put on the ballot by citizens or interest groups for a popular vote. Referendum is you refer a proposed law passed by a legislature to the vote of the electorate for approval or rejection. So ballot measures... uh, The campaigns often involve high spending by proponents and opponents, mass media campaigns that can rival those of congressional and presidential candidates within the state. And the validity of ballot measure results, however, is subject to judicial action. So if a court finds that an initiative validates or violates the state or national constitution, it can overturn the result. And that happened in 2012 when the federal courts overturned California's Proposition 8 which banned same-sex marriage. And ballot initiative not only changed policy, but also appeared to affect political behavior. So citizens living in direct democracy states report more interest in politics and are more likely to discuss politics. And ballot propositions, they offer voters the opportunity to directly make public policy and change government laws, which may have an educative effect on the people. And when they have more opportunities to act politically, citizens may learn to participate more and come to believe their participation has meaning. Elections with policy choices on the ballot provide information to voters in the form of political campaigns and attention in the mass media. Ballot measures concerning controversial policy issues generate their own campaigns with television, newspaper, and digital media. And they rely on volunteers for mobilization drives that contact potential voters. Hundreds of initia and referenda appear on state ballots every two years. And an initiative, uh, for example, in Maine in 2016, created a new system of voting called ranked choice voting that we've talked about before, where voters choose three candidates to rank in order of preference rather than choosing only one. So the new voting system applies to gubernatorial, congressional, and state legislative elections. Ballot initiatives are increasingly common. More initiatives and referenda have appeared on state ballots over the last 30 years than at any other time in American history, outside of the progressive era at the turn of the 20th century. So, in addition, ballot measures can help shape both the national agenda and evaluations of candidates. In 2006, coordinated ballot measures Raising the minimum wage in multiple states may have influenced voters to focus on the economy, priming voters to cast ballots for Democrats in Congress and for Democratic governors. Placing issues on the ballot as part of an effort 
to influence candidate elections is an important strategy for political campaigns attempting to shape the political agenda. And 18 states also have legal provisions for recall elections, which allow voters to remove governors and other state officials from office prior to the expiration of their terms. But federal officials like the president and members of Congress, they are not subject to popular recall. Now let's talk about election campaigns. So a campaign is an effort by political candidates and their political party to win the backing of donors, elected officials, and voters in their quest for office. So campaigns precede every primary and general election. And because of the complexity of the campaign process and the amount of money that the no that the candidates have to raise, presidential campaigns often begin almost 2 years before the November election and congressional campaigns uh 12 months in advance of the election. So the campaign for any office consists of a number of steps. Candidates often raise funds or often form an exploratory committee consisting of supporters who will help them raise funds and bring their names to the attention of the media, potential donors, and voters. And money from corporations and affluent citizens is an important component of U.S. elections since public funding is limited. Now, incumbents who already hold elected office, they have an advantage over the candidates challenging them. Incumbents usually are already well-known. They have little difficulty attracting supporters and campaign contributors, unless, of course, they have been subject to some damaging publicity while in office. And a formal organization of professional campaign managers, they are critical for campaign success. For a local campaign, candidates generally need hundreds of volunteers and some paid professionals. State-level campaigns call for thousands of volunteers, presidential campaigns require tens of thousands and paid staff nationwide. Virtually all serious contenders for nation, national and statewide office retain the services of professional uh, campaign consultants. Most candidates need a professional campaign manager, media consultants, pollsters, and a data analytics team, financial advisors. a press spokesperson, staff directors to coordinate the activities of volunteer and paid workers. And consultants offer candidates the expertise necessary to craft appealing campaign messages, conduct uh, accurate opinion polls, produce television and social media ads, organize direct mail campaigns, open field offices, and leverage valuable information about their constituents from massive digital voter files or from surveys. Uh, Most consultants who direct campaigns, they uh, specialize in politics, corporate advertising, and strategic communication, public relations, communications, computing, and they may work with commercial clients in addition to politicians. And modern national political campaigns are fueled by enormous amounts of money with more money necessary for highly competitive elections and federal offices. Candidates generally begin raising funds long before they face an election, 
And many politicians spend more time soliciting donations than engaging in any other type of campaign activity. Members of Congress spend a significant portion of their time fundraising. Democratic leadership recommends that 40 to 50% of their time uh, be spent on fundraising. And serious fundraising efforts involve appealing to both small and large donors to have a reasonable chance of winning a seat in the House of Representatives. A candidate may need to raise more than a million dollars. So what's elected to office? Members of Congress find it much easier to raise campaign funds and are thus able to outspend their challengers. Incumbents can outraise their opponent by significant amounts because most businesses and corporations, interest group contributions, and PAC money donations go to incumbents. These groups seek a voice in government from their investment and campaign contributions. Thus, these organizations, like businesses, labor unions, public interest groups, and others, want to invest in the candidate most likely to win. And the House and Senate are particularly attractive to donors who want access to those in power. So, for those candidates who win the nomination process, the last hurdle is the general election. There are essentially two types of general election campaigns in the United States today. So, we have grassroots campaigns and mass media campaigns. The first type is the organizationally driven labor-intensive election. Candidates campaign for local elections and many congressional elections by recruiting large numbers of volunteers to knock on doors, hand out leaflets, and organize rallies. The candidates make public appearances in many places, including university campuses. And generally, local and congressional campaigns rely heavily on grassroots outreach and mobilization designed to make the candidate more visible than their opponent. Statewide campaigns, some congressional races, and the national presidential election fall into the second category, the media-driven, money-intensive electoral campaign. And all campaigns must decide on a strategy. You know, what will their main message be? How will they allocate their resources? Which voters will they target? And the Electoral College is one election rule that influences the campaign strategy of presidential candidates by forcing them to campaign heavily in a dozen battleground or swing states, those in which Democrats and Republicans are roughly even in population, while often ignoring the rest of the country. Presidential candidates in the general election focus not on winning the most individual votes, but rather on winning the electoral votes of states that are not considered safely Republican or safely Democrat. Residents of battleground states get smothered with attention from the candidates and media as presidential candidates vie for that state's votes. While, while the millions of residents in states where Republicans generally win, like Texas, Utah, or Democrats, uh, like New York, Illinois, California, often get ignored. So without electoral competition in safe states, the needs and concerns of the residents uh, may well be ignored. Now, contemporary political campaigns rely on a number of communication tools to reach the voters they want to target for support, including social media, massive computerized databases, and micro-targeting.
And digital communication strategy is especially important in mobilizing citizens to vote. So, extensive use of uh, broadcast media, television in particular, is the hallmark of the modern political campaign. Airing television ads is the primary cost faced by presidential and congressional candidates. Two media techniques that became important in the 1990s are the talk show interview and the town hall meeting. Now, the town hall meeting format allows candidates the opportunity to interact with ordinary citizens, thus showing the candidates' concern with the views and needs of the voters. Both talk show appearances and town hall meetings, when televised, allow candidates to deliver their messages to millions of Americans without the input of journalists or commentators who might criticize or question the candidates' assertions. Candidates spend millions of dollars for paid media time in the form of television and radio ads. So many of these ads consist of 15, 30, or 60-second spots, like advertisements that deliver a candidate's message to a target audience. One notable example was Lyndon Johnson's 1964 Daisy ad, which suggested that Johnson's opponent, Barry Goldwater, would lead the United States into nuclear war. Television ads are used to establish candidate name recognition, create a favorable image of the candidate and a negative image of the opponent, link the candidate with desirable groups in the community, and communicate the candidate's stance on selected issues. Often in the later stages of a campaign, candidates in the political advocacy groups that support them will go negative, airing ads that criticize their opponent's policy positions, qualifications, or character. Though voters consistently say they reject so-called negative campaigning, political scientist John Gere found that negative campaign ads can benefit voters more than positive ads in some cases. Negative ads are more likely to address important policy differences and provide supporting evidence, while positive ads tend to focus on candidates' personal characteristics. And even when negative ads are misleading or patently false, they are effective in that voters remember more from negative ads than from positive ads possibly because negative ads are designed to elicit emotional responses such as fear, anxiety, or anger. In addition to ads sponsored by the candidates, a growing percentage of campaign ads are sponsored by the political parties and by political advocacy groups seeking to influence the outcome of the election. The 2010 Citizens United decision allowed corporations, unions, and interest groups to spend unlimited amounts of their own money to advocate for political candidates. Corporations, unions, and interest groups can form super PACs and run unlimited campaign ads for or against candidates as long as the organizations are independent of the candidate's campaign. When viewers see attack ads against a candidate, it can be difficult to determine who sponsored the ad because a super PAC with a generic name, Citizens for America, for example, paid for the ad. The effect of unlimited spending on television advertising remains unclear. Candidates also benefit from free media, where the cost of airtime is borne by the media themselves when the media cover the candidates' statements and activities as news. So, in 2016, in the primaries, Donald Trump, largely due to his many controversial statements and tweets, benefited from free media coverage. And critics claim that the network's tendency to focus on Trump rather than provide balanced political coverage of all the candidates occur because he drew the biggest audience. Online media is free and has become a major weapon in modern political campaigns as more Americans turn 
to the internet and social media for news. Now today, every presidential campaign and most campaigns for Congress and major state offices develop a social media strategy for fundraising, generating interest in a candidate, mobilizing supporters, and getting out the vote. Now, one reason digital media are so effective at organizing presidential campaigns is cost. The internet enables inexpensive organization of volunteers and offers more opportunities for free advertising. Now, like Twitter and YouTube. So, online political videos may be more effective than television ads because viewers make a conscious choice to watch them instead of having their television program interrupted by an unwanted ad. Now, public debates were a critical part of the democratic processes of ancient Greeks, where they were both a vital form of public entertainment and the main means of what today would be called voter education. And many successful American politicians, such as Abraham Lincoln and Barack Obama, came to prominence largely because of their skill as debaters. Today, both presidential and vice presidential candidates hold debates, as do candidates for statewide and even local offices. Debates give voters the opportunity to see how the candidates fare in direct face-to-face exchanges outside the campaign bubble of stage-managed public appearances and carefully scripted speeches. Candidates who can think on their feet may be seen as demonstrating the kind of on-the-spot decision-making that is more like actual governing than anything else they do in the campaign. Televised presidential debates began with the famous 1960 Kennedy-Nixon clash. Kennedy's strong performance in the debate and the perception of many voters that the youthfully vigorous Kennedy looked presidential were major factors in bringing about his victory over the much better known Richard Nixon. Indeed, candidates can make or break their campaigns with the strength of their debate performances, including high-profile gaffes during the debates and even unconscious gestures and the nuances of their facial expressions. Presidential debates usually involve civilized disagreement about substantive policy issues. The Republican primary debates in 2016 uncharacteristically included fierce arguments, harsh character attacks, and personal insults, many of which stem from the bombastic style of Donald Trump and and his opponents' occasional attempts to match it. When Trump faced off against Hillary Clinton in the general election, the antagonistic tone continued, and their first televised debate broke viewership records as the most watched in U.S. history. In the media and televised debates, they allow candidates to communicate their policy goals and promises to voters. While this method is efficient for campaigns, it is also blunt. Different voters care about different issues, after all. So by targeting such voters with messages focusing on, say, like Bush's position on the uh, the wedge issue, the campaign was hoping to convince these voters to cast a ballot for Bush rather than for his opponent. And micro-targeting became more sophisticated during the 08 campaigns as Democrats built an extensive organization to contact and turn out voters. So, because of micro-targeting, millions of Americans heard from other Americans about issues that mattered the most to them. Virtually all campaigns for national and statewide offices make extensive use of random sample opinion polling to be competitive. 
A candidate must use random sample public opinion polls to gauge public support. Polls of likely voters are conducted throughout most political campaigns. These polls provide the basic information that candidates and their staff use to craft campaign messages and strategies. So that is to select issues, assess the candidate's strengths and weaknesses, and those of the opposition, and measure voter responses to the campaign. So once campaigns have identified specific groups of people, they reach out via face-to-face contacts, phone calls, mailings, and social media to their target audiences for fundraising and voter mobilization. Personal contact has been found to be the most effective at mobilizing voters to turn out vote, but requires field offices and volunteers. Staffs of paid or volunteer telephone callers using computer-assisted dialing systems and prepared scripts also place calls to deliver their candidate's message. The targeted groups are often those identified by polls as either uncommitted or weakly committed but strong supporters of the candidate are also contacted and encouraged to vote and donate money to the campaign. Now, direct mail is another vehicle for communicating with voters. After obtaining the appropriate mailing lists, candidates usually send pamphlets, letters, and brochures describing themselves and their views to voters believed to be sympathetic. Often, the letters sent to voters are personalized. You know, the recipient is addressed by name in the text. The letter appears actually to have been signed by the candidate. In addition to its use as a political advertising medium, direct mail is an important source of campaign funds. So, computerized mailing lists permit campaign strategists to pinpoint individuals whose interests, background, and activities suggest that they may be potential donors to the campaign. All right, so let's start talking about money and politics. So online fundraising has made raising money for campaigns more convenient. Modern campaigns do require a great deal of money, like we talked about. Just a 60-second spot on primetime network TV costs hundreds of thousands of dollars each time it's aired. Polling, social media campaigns, data analytics can easily reach or exceed the six-figure mark. And campaign consultants require and charge very substantial fees. In the 19th century, labor-intensive campaigns allowed parties whose main support came from groups near, like, the bottom of the socioeconomic scale to use their numerical superiority as a partial counterweight to the institutional and economic resources more readily available to the opposition. And as many as 2.5 million individuals worked on political campaigns during the 1880s. And so the money-intensive campaign of the modern era by contrast it's given a major boost to the political fortunes of candidates whose supporters are able to furnish large sums now needed to compete effectively so the united states is rare among democracies in allowing candidates to raise unlimited amounts of money to spend on their campaigns with no time restrictions of when the money can be spent in most democratic countries publicly financed campaigns are the norm and such a system candidates or parties uh, are provided with set of set amount of money to spend by the government. In the United States, candidates may raise ever-increasing amounts of money from private individuals, corporations, and interest groups. Reformers have long been concerned about the potential for corruption that exists when candidates are actively soliciting private interest for funding campaigns. 
And in an attempt to limit the influence of money in politics, the federal government has adopted a number of laws to limit and regulate contributions to political campaigns. But two Supreme Court decisions adopted over a 40-year period have dismantled most of the restrictions on money in politics. So the first case was Buckley v. Vallejo, 1976. It was a landmark Supreme Court case that struck down several provisions of the Federal Election Campaign Act from 1974, including limits on candidate spending, use of personal funds, and independent expenditures. And independent expenditures, these are amounts of money spent to influence a campaign, but the donating organization is not allowed to coordinate with a candidate's official campaign. So the decision introduced the idea that money, in this case campaign contribution, counts as speech under the First Amendment and that candidates could spend unlimited amounts of their own money on their own campaign. However, the court left intact the provision of the law that set limits on individuals' campaign contributions. And then in 2010, the Supreme Court ruled in Citizens United versus the Federal Election Commission that the government could not restrict independent expenditures by corporations or unions in support of candidates. So the court said restrictions on independent expenditures violated the First Amendment. With that decision, the U.S. entered a new era of campaign finance in which corporations and unions can spend unlimited sums. So following the Citizens United decision, Speech Now versus FEC allowed wealthy individuals and organizations to form committees called super PACs which can raise unlimited amounts of money to run advertising for and against candidates so long as their efforts are not uh, coordinated with those of the candidates. So these groups can spend unlimited amounts for or against candidates, but they cannot contribute directly to their campaign. So this resulted in a significant increase in campaign spending in the 2010 midterm election and unprecedented spending in the 2012 and 2016 presidential elections. So, as the court struggles to balance free speech with preventing political corruption, the sums of these three court decisions tips the scale in favor of speech. So, opponents raise concerns that unlimited spending by wealthy donors, corporations, and other organizations could worsen existing corruption in American politics. And that concern is bolstered by a number of new studies finding that members of Congress make decisions that represent the interests of wealthy campaign donors, not average voters. So although restrictions remain on how money is raised and spent on elections, there is today a great deal of latitude on where money comes from and what it is used for. Campaigns have at least six potential sources of funds. So Politicians spend a good deal of time asking people for money. Money is solicited through direct mail, internet, over the phone, uh, in-person face-to-face meetings. And under federal law, individuals may donate as much as $2,700 per candidate per election, $5,000 per federal PAC per calendar year, and $33,400 per national party committee committee per calendar year and 10,000 to state and local committees per calendar year. There is no limit to the number of candidates or PACs an individual can give to. However, and a result, which is a result of the uh, McCutcheon et al. versus Federal Election Commission Supreme Court decision. 
So Bernie Sanders' 2016 presidential campaign raised an unprecedented $231 million on individual contributions, 58% of which was made up of small contributions under $200. So political action committees, talked about individuals, now political action committees that can give money. So uh, these PACs, they're often called, uh, they're organizations established by corporations, labor unions, interest or advocacy groups to channel the contributions of their members and employees into political campaigns. So under the terms of the 1971 Federal Election Campaign Act, which governs campaign finance in the U.S., PACs are permitted to make larger contributions to any given candidate than individuals are allowed to make. And allied or related PACs often coordinate their campaign contributions, which increases the amount of money a candidate actually receives from the same interest group. And more than 4,600 PACs are registered with the Federal Election Commission, which oversee campaign finance practices in the United States. And nearly two-thirds of all PACs represent corporations, trade associations, and other business and professional groups. Many congressional and party leaders have established PACs, known as leadership PACs, to provide funding for their political allies. And before 2002, most campaign dollars took the form of soft money, unregulated contributions to the national parties nominally to assist in party building, voter registration efforts, and voter mobilization rather than for particular campaigns. And federal campaign finance legislation was uh, built by Senators John McCain and Russell Feingold, enacted in 2002, that tried to ban soft money by prohibiting the national parties from receiving contributions from corporations, unions, or individuals, and preventing them from directing these funds to their affiliated state parties. However, it did not reduce the overall importance of money in politics, so under federal rules, the National Party Political Party Committee may make unlimited independent expenditures, advocating support for its own presidential candidate or defeating an opposing party's candidate, as long as these expenditures are not coordinated with the candidate's own campaign. So 527 committees, also called super PACs, and 501c4 committees, sometimes called dark money, are independent groups that are currently not covered by the campaign spending restrictions imposed in 2002 by the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act. But now they raise a lot of the money used for political campaigns. So these groups that... They're named for the section of the tax code that they're organized under. They can raise and spend unlimited amounts as long as their efforts are not coordinated with those of any candidate's campaign. So, as a result, each presidential campaign raises millions of sympathetic outside groups. And a 527 is a group established specifically for the purpose of political advocacy and is required to report to the IRS. A 501c4 is a nonprofit group that also engages in campaign advocacy but may not spend more than half of its revenue for political purposes. So, unlike a 527, a 501c4 is not required to disclose where it gets its funds or exactly what it does with them. So, as a result, its funding has earned the name dark money and has raised growing concern that the lack of transparency in campaign funding threatens fair elections. So, it has become common practice for wealthy and corporate donors, as well as foreigners, to route campaign contributions through 501c4s to avoid the legal limits on contributions through other channels. Now, outside spending through super PACs and dark money, uh, they played a big role in the 2012 and 2016 presidential races and the 2018 midterm elections as outside groups started running a lot 
of television and online ads. Super PACs on both sides relied on very large contributions. A growing concern is that elections in the U.S. can be bought with big money from corporations and wealthy donors who will then hold significant influence when that candidate is elected. Political corruption and undue influence from Wall Street were recurring themes among the 2016 presidential candidates, but 2016 was characterized by lopsided campaign spending. Clinton raised and spent double that of the Trump campaign. By October 2016, Clinton had raised nearly $500 million with an additional $189 million from outside money from super PACs compared to just $247 million raised by Trump with another $50 million, $59 million from outside money. Uh, the Federal Election Campaign Act also provides for public funding of presidential campaigns. Candidates running as a major party in the presidential primaries are eligible for public funds by raising at least $5,000 in individual contributions of $250 or less in each of the 20 states. Candidates who reach this threshold may apply for federal funds to match on a dollar-for-dollar basis all contributions of $250 or less. But by accepting matching funds, they agree to spend no more than $48.07 million in their presidential primary campaigns, including limits on using their personal funds and funds from private donors. So under no current law, no candidate is required to accept public funding for either the nominating races or the general presidential election. Candidates who do not accept public funding are not affected by any expenditure limits. So back in 08, John McCain accepted public funding for the general election campaign, receiving $84 million, but Barack Obama declined, choosing to rely on his own fundraising prowess. He was ultimately able to outspend McCain by a wide margin. Neither major party candidate accepted public financing in 2012 or 2016. As a result, a lot of observers have believed that the 2008 race was the last time that a major party candidate would forego personal fundraising in favor of public funding. And the United States is unique from most other democratic countries, which rely on public funding for political campaigns to prevent corruption. And on the basis of the 1976 Buckley versus Vallejo decision, the right of individuals to spend their own money to campaign for office is a constitutionally protected matter of free speech and is not subject to limitation. Thus, extremely wealthy candidates often contribute millions of dollars of to their own campaigns. Donald Trump, for example, spent millions of his own money in his 2016 campaign, as did Ross Perot in 1992 and 1996. Now, even if well-funded groups and powerful individuals influence the electoral process, it is the millions of individual decisions on election day that ultimately determine electoral outcomes. Sooner or later, the choices of voters weigh more heavily than the schemes of campaign advertising advisors, or the leverage of interest groups. Three factors influence voters' decisions at the polls. Partisan loyalty, issues, and policy preferences. So they're together in one. And then finally, candidate characteristics. Now, most voters feel a certain sense of identification or kinship with the Democratic Party or the Republicans. And that sense of identification is often handed down from parents to children, reinforced by social and cultural ties, Partisan identification predisposes voters to favor their party's candidates and oppose those of the other party. At the level of the presidential contest, issues and candidate personalities may become very important, but partisanship is more likely to assert itself in the less visible races where issues and the candidates are not as well known. State legislative races, for example, are often decided by voters' partisanship. And once formed, 
Voters' partisan loyalties seldom change. Individuals tend to keep their party affiliations unless some crisis causes them to re-examine the basis of their loyalties and to conclude that they have not given their support to the appropriate party. During these relatively infrequent periods of electoral change, millions of voters can change their party ties. Now, policy preferences are a second factor that influence people's choices at the polls. And voters may cast their ballots for the candidate whose position on economic issues they believe to be the closest to their own or the candidate who has what they believe to be the best record on foreign policy or immigration. Though candidates for the presidency or Congress are often held accountable for the economy, other policy issues vary in importance depending on the election. So in 08, for example, Obama made ending the war in Iraq and providing national health care for all Americans his core issues. In 2016, Donald Trump made curbing immigration and building a wall along the U.S.-Mexico border a key issue in his campaign for the presidency. So if candidates articulate and publicize very different positions on important policy issues, voters are more likely to be able to identify and act on whatever policy preferences they may have. And the ability of voters to make this choices on the basis of policy preferences is diminished, however. So if the voters are uninformed and misinformed about the issues and candidates... For instance, so voters' issue choices usually involve a mix of their judgments about past behavior, competing parties, and candidates, and their hopes and fears of candidates' future behavior. And political scientists call choices that focus on future behavior prospective voting, whereas those based on past performance are called retrospective voting. Retrospective economic voting, in which voters evaluate candidates on the strength of the economy, has been found to be more important than prospective voting. To some extent, whether prospective or retrospective evaluation is more important in a particular election depends on the strategies of competing candidates. Candidates always endeavor to define the issues of an election in terms that will serve their interests. Incumbents running during a period of prosperity will take, seek to take credit for the economy's strength and will define the election as revolving around their record of success. This strategy encourages voters to make retrospective judgments. By contrast, an insurgent running during a period of economic uncertainty will tell voters it is time for a change and ask them to make prospective judgments. Donald Trump focused on change in 2016 and making America great again, and through well-crafted media campaigns was able to define voters' agenda of choices. As we identify the strategies and tactics employed by opposing political candidates and parties, we should keep in mind that the best laid plans of politicians often go awry. So, a or awry. And election outcomes are often affected by a variety of forces that candidates for office cannot fully control. Among the most important of these forces is the condition of the economy. If voters are satisfied with their economic conditions, they tend to support the party in power, while concern about the economy tends to favor the opposition. In over the past quarter century, the Consumer Confidence Index, calculated by the Conference Board, a business research group, has been a fairly accurate predictor of presidential outcomes. The index is based on surveys of asking voters how optimistic they are about the future of the economy. It would appear that a generally rosy view indicated by a score over 100 bodes well for the party in power. An index score under 100 indicating that voters are pessimistic about the economy's trend suggests that incumbents should worry about their own job prospects. In recent presidential elections, personal economic conditions were an important factor in explaining voter decisions in the election. 
Candidates' personal attributes can influence voters' decisions. The more important candidate characteristics that affect voters' choices are race, ethnicity, religion, gender, geography, and socioeconomic background. In general, voters may be proud to see someone of their gender or of their ethnic, religious, or geographic background in a position of leadership. They may presume that such candidates are likely to have views and perspectives close to their own. This is why politicians often seek to balance a ticket by making certain that their party's ticket included members of as many important groups as possible. And just as candidates' personal characteristics may attract some voters, they may repel others. Some voters are prejudiced against candidates from certain ethnic, racial, or religious groups. And for many years, voters were reluctant to support the candidacies of women, although this is slowly changing. Voters also pay attention to candidates' personality characteristics, such as the decisiveness, honesty, and vigor. In recent years, integrity has become a key election issue. In 2016, many Americans questioned the trustworthiness of both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. Nonetheless, Trump supporters saw their candidate as unafraid to speak his mind. Clinton supporters, on the other hand, admired her ambition, toughness, and discipline. In, sorry. So now we're going to be looking at how the 2016 and 2018 races unfolded and the major factors that contributed to the results. So um, we have experienced multiple like ideological realignments that's made both parties more ideologically homogenous. And today the Republican Party is the party of conservatives, while Democratic is the political home of those who view themselves as politically liberal and within each party, though, there are some differences of political perspective. The Democratic camp includes different varieties of liberal opinions, ranging from traditional social welfare liberalism, which traces its roots to the New Deal, to left liberal progressivism, which envisions a substantially expanded role for the federal government. And the Republican camp includes many shades of conservative opinion, ranging from business conservatives who support reduction, reducing government regulation and taxes, to social conservatives who oppose abortion and same-sex marriage. In 2016, each party's nomination was sharply contested by candidates representing different factions within the two parties, as well as by outsider populist candidates. Now, on the Democratic side, Hillary Clinton faced a serious challenge from Bernie Sanders, the Vermont senator. He was a left liberal progressive, self-described Democratic socialist. And though her... She had experience and control of the party machinery, support in minority communities. Fundraising prowess seemed to make her nomination a foregone conclusion. Sanders did, though, despite all that, mount a very aggressive candidacy that gained momentum in large part through mobilizing young voters. And Sanders' populist platform, which to some contained bold new ideas such as free college education called for a political revolution to counter political corruption, corporate influence, and inequality. Though outmatched in money and organization, Sanders proved a tenacious competitor. He was widely seen as more trustworthy and authentic than Clinton, especially by young Americans. And Sanders did win 43% of the Democratic primary vote, carried 23 states and territories compared to Clinton's 34. 
Now, on the Republican side, the 2016 presidential nomination battle revealed a lot of divisions within the party. There were 17 candidates in the beginning, uh, including establishment candidates like Jeb Bush and Marco Rubio. There was Libertarian Rand Paul, social conservatives like Ted Cruz, real estate mogul and reality TV star Donald Trump. He was an outsider populist candidate claiming to represent the interests of ordinary Americans rather than elites. His platform included the enactment of harsher immigration laws the repeal of Obamacare, the appointment of more conservative judges to the federal courts, an end to environmental and other regulations that increase manufacturing costs in the United States, and changes to international economic agreements to better serve American interests. And with his slogans, Trump's stances more closely mirrored those of European nationalist and radical right populist candidates than the views of mainstream conservatives in the United States. So, with their party's nominations in hand, Clinton and Trump, they faced each other in the general election. Uh, She seemed to possess several advantages, especially her experience in public office and the Democrats seeming advantage in the Electoral College. Based on voting patterns in recent elections, states with a total of roughly 217 electoral votes were considered blue states, either safely Democratic or favorable to Democrats. States with another 32 electoral votes leaned Democratic, potentially putting the Democratic candidate within 21 of the 270 votes needed to win. The Republicans, by contrast, could generally only count on around 191 uh, electoral votes from the reliably red states. Democratic candidates um, usually receive support from the most rapidly growing segments of the electorate, like minority voters, along with women and young people. Republicans, on the other hand, rely primarily on the votes of white Americans, especially men, who represent a declining fraction of the electorate. And Clinton, she also entered the race with an enormous fundraising edge over Trump. The and so that ultimately allowed the former Secretary of State to spend more than twice as much as her rival. So we saw like money starting to play a role. Like first Clinton and Trump are the two most disliked nominees in modern American history. Both candidates have far lower favorability reigns than past presidential candidates. Scandals raged on throughout the general election campaign. Many Americans reported that the election left them feeling disgusted. Second was gender played a significant, uh, ultimately not decisive role that year. So, I mean, we did see the first female presidential candidate representing a major party, but gender issues were also headline news throughout most, most of, much of the election. Donald Trump made comments about women that many people deemed offensive, and similar past comments of his were unearthed. Uh, Trump campaign countered that Clinton's husband had also treated women inappropriately. Uh, the media played an outside role, outsized role that year. Uh, President Obama criticized the media for focusing excessively on Trump with the goal of making headlines and viral news. In the general election, Trump received more than double Clinton's free media attention. He excelled on the campaign trail, tweeting his daily campaign messages, effectively writing his own headline news. At the same time, uh, some people, including Trump himself, believed that the news media's political bias favored Clinton, and Trump began declaring that the mainstream media published and broadcast fake news and should be ignored. And last was money mattered, you know, 
And it didn't. Clinton raised and spent twice as much as the Trump campaign and had superior organization with more field offices than Trump in almost every state. However, Trump's enormous free media coverage estimated to be as worth as $2 billion uh, more than offset Clinton's financial edge. Almost every morning, a new and more outrageous Trump tweet or Facebook post would dominate the news, leaving very little space for Clinton to set the media agenda. But from the earliest years of the Republic, you know, personal attacks, they've been an important weapon in the arsenals of competing political forces. But the 2016 campaign seemed to a lot of observers to represent a whole new phase in this aggressive mudslinging. So leading up to the presidential election, Republicans in 2015 launched a congressional investigation of Hillary Clinton's role in the deaths of USMBC officials in Benghazi, Libya, and another investigation of Clinton's use of her private email server to handle official State Department correspondence during her tenure as Secretary of State. Democrats charged that the primary purpose of these investigations was to damage Clinton's reputation as the presumptive 2016 Democratic presidential nominee. While the investigations did not lead to formal charges against Clinton, they served to convince many Americans that the former Secretary of State was dishonest and untrustworthy. During the course of the race, WikiLeaks made available a large quantity of Democratic National Committee emails and stolen emails from Clinton's campaign director, John Podesta. The emails revealed Clinton said different things in public and private, which to some show she was disconnected from ordinary Americans. Democrats disputed the content of the leaks and suggested that WikiLeaks had been given its information by the Russian government, which had launched tax as part of an effort to influence the American election, a claim later proved to be true. For their part, Democratic opposition researchers had begun to develop a dossier on Trump as soon as he emerged as a potential GOP candidate. Democrats focused on his many controversial remarks, such as comments about women and statements blaming undocumented immigrants for drugs, rape, and other crime, labeling them as offensive and Trump as xenophobic, racist, and sexist. On October 7, 2016, with one month before the November election, the Washington Post released a video from 2005 that contained audio of Trump making lewd comments about women and boasting about how his celebrity status gave him license to touch women inappropriately. Comments that made many people feel or they felt it condoned sexual assault. The release of the tape was followed by allegations from more than a dozen women who reported having experienced unwanted sexual advances by Trump or who accused the candidate of sexual assault. Most of these accounts concerned events that had taken place some years in the past and Trump contested their veracity. However, an increasingly unflattering image of Trump emerged. The recording, which Trump could not dispute, created explosive negative media coverage and a sharp drop in his polling numbers. Eleven days before the election, a scandal and personal attacks turned back on Clinton. FBI Director James Comey sent a letter to Congress saying his agency was investigating 650,000 newly discovered emails that could be pertinent to their earlier investigation of Clinton's use of a primate email server during her time as Secretary of State. The letter effectively reopened the investigation of Clinton's mishandling of email communications and the possibility of a national security breach, and the Trump campaign capitalized on the announcement as further proof of Clinton's alleged corruption. Two days before the election, Comey announced that the emails, in fact, did not support new charges, and as Americans went to the polls, most analysts gave Clinton a 70-80% to 80% chance of winning. Now, in the end, the 2016 election was a historic upset in which the national media and the polling forecasts were mistaken. 
On election night, the forecast swung widely from earlier predictions of a safe Clinton victory to reports indicating a Trump victory by white margins. Many Americans who had been following the opinion polls and media analysis before the election were stunned by Trump's surprise win and by the Republican success in retaining control of both houses of Congress. So many Americans that have been following all that, they were stunned by the surprise win, of course. And the Republicans ended up getting control of both houses of Congress. Trump swept every southern state, nearly half of the Midwest. Uh, and he had unexpected success in the northern industrial states of Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. He won the battleground states of Florida and Ohio. And so it ultimately tipped the balance, leading to his victory in the Electoral College. And so for only the fourth time in U.S. history, the candidate who won a majority in the Electoral College did not win the popular vote. So Republicans also retained control of both houses of Congress, as well as a majority of the state legislatures. Now, Trump's popularity among working class white Americans, especially white men, was crucial to his winning coalition. And so this demographic group had the most negative views of the economy and was generally opposed to the trade policies favored by the Democrats and mainstream conservatives. They looked to Trump to bring back factory jobs that had moved overseas and saw Clinton as representing Wall Street, government, and as one Trump ad put it, more of the same. And then there was the Russian interference, right? So soon after the conclusion of the campaign, Democrats charged that Trump had been helped by Russian hacking of the Democratic National Committee and Clinton emails and trolls mounting a social media campaign aimed at defeating Clinton. Multiple reports from the national intelligence agencies confirmed the Russian government did seek to intervene in 2016. And analysis of tweets and Facebook posts emanating from Russian sources suggests that the Russian government's main goal was to sow discord in the United States by promoting an inflammatory discourse on such matters as race, religion, gun controlling, and police shootings of black men. Often troll farm agents would tweet on both sides of the issue to stir up trouble. But both Republicans and Democrats recognize the gravity of foreign government interference with American elections. Former House Speaker Paul Ryan said the Russians engaged in a sinister and systematic attack on our political system. It was a conspiracy to subvert the process and take aim at democracy itself. While Senate Democratic leader Chuck Schumer at the time said investigations have provided proof that the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, directed a campaign to interfere with our elections with the goal of tipping the outcome. So the fact that the Russians meddled in the 2016 election raised questions about whether the Trump campaign had knowledge of Russian efforts or in any way worked with the Russians. To answer these questions, a probe led by special counsel and former FBI director Robert Mueller was launched in May 2017. As a result of the Mueller probe, a half dozen Trump campaign officials have been indicted for various federal crimes and violations of campaign laws. President Trump was, has vehemently denied allegations of impropriety and denounced the Mueller probe as a witch hunt organized by his political foes. At the time of his writing, the relationship between Trump campaign and the Russian government remains unclear. Like, we still don't really know 
what quite happened. So immediately after the 2018 national elections, President Trump requested and received the resignation of Attorney General Jeff Sessions and named Sessions Chief of Staff Matthew Whitaker, acting Attorney General. Whitaker had frequently criticized the Mueller probe and had suggested restricting its authority by cutting its budget to stop the investigation of the president. And if Whitaker follows through on these ideas, the stage will be set for a tumultuous battle between the Trump administration and congressional Democrats. And now, at the time of this recording, uh, Trump, of course, is no longer president. He lost the election. We have Joe Biden as president. And Trump was acquitted a historic second time on impeachment. So generally speaking, American national elections follow a pattern sometimes called the cycle of surge and decline. In a presidential year like 2016, the party that captures the White House also gains seats in the House and Senate as many voters drawn to the polls by the presidential contest will also count their ballot, cast their ballots for other members of the president's party. But in the ensuing off-year elections, uh, some of those extra seats are almost sure to be lost. And there's some unique factors that help decide the elections in each state and congressional district. But the 2018 election, more than most midterm election contests, revolved around the president. Trump's outsized personality and frequent inflammatory rhetoric inspired anger on the part of some voters and fierce loyalty on the part of others. And so between 2016 and 2018, across the country, hundreds of thousands of Democrats who had never previously been much involved in politics, especially women and young people, entered the political arena to oppose Donald Trump. And these Democrats engaged in political activity by signing petitions, attending rallies and protests, contacting public officials. So kind of looking at the outcome in 2018, Democrats won control of the U.S. House for the first time since 2010. <coughs> Excuse me. So sorry, folks. Uh, well, Republicans, they did expand their majority in the Senate. So Democrats, they won seven governor's races. They gained control of a handful of le- state legislatures and also won four new state attorney general offices. The voter turnout in 2018 was 49%, the highest level since 1966, and a strong increase over recent midterm elections. Youth voter turnout, which is historically very hard to increase, soared by 10 percentage points to 31% of voters aged 18 to 29. So in a number of states... Uh, voters were also asked to decide ballot measures. Gerrymandering itself was on the ballot in some states. Voters in Colorado, Michigan, and Missouri overwhelmingly supported ballot initiatives creating independent commissions to draw district boundaries. Some commissions were established in Arizona in 2000 and California in 2010 and have long been practiced in Iowa. Supporters of the commission idea opposed gerrymandering, whether partisan or bipartisan, and favor a level electoral playing field. Voters in Michigan and Missouri approved legalization of medical marijuana. Voters in Arkansas, Missouri, approved increases in the minimum wage, restrictions on abortion carried in Alabama and West Virginia. In Massachusetts, voters rejected a measure that would have repealed a 2016 law prohibiting discrimination in public places based on gender identity. 
North Carolina and Arkansas citizens approved state constitutional amendments requiring voters to present official photo IDs when casting ballots. There was a Florida referendum restored voting rights for most ex-felons. And interestingly, voters in some solidly red states approve progressive ballot initiatives, while voters in some solidly blue states approved initiatives generally associated with conservative forces. So, for example, voters in deeply red Ohio, Nebraska, and Utah, they approved referenda expanding Medicaid coverage, while voters in the solidly blue Washington turned back a ballot measure imposing a fee on industries responsible for greenhouse gas emissions. And these results may appear peculiar, but ballot initiatives carry no party label. So stripped of party as a cue, voters often stray from their expected behavior. And so the mixed results of the 2018 election were something of a disappointment to Democrats who thought they would hand President Trump a more crushing defeat. And But voter turnout did increase sharply. Some 114 million Americans, or 49% of the nation's eligible voters, participated in the last midterm election of 2014, voter turnout was only 36%. So, given Trump's low levels of public approval, this should have helped the Democrats and indeed many more voters said they cast their votes to oppose Trump than voted to support him. So, on a national basis, Democrats received a clear majority of the votes cast in congressional elections. About 5 million more than were cast for Republicans. And a challenge, though, is that American elections are not national. You know, they are a set of individual state-by-state and district-by-district contests. For the most part, Democrats' blue wave meant that opposition to Trump increased sharply in states and urban suburban districts where the president was already unpopular without having much impact upon states and districts in America's small towns and rural areas where the president drew his strongest support. Trump had spent the weeks before the election bolstering GOP enthusiasm in those areas, building a red wall to hold back the Democrats' blue wave. Despite losses in the Senate, taking control of the House of Representatives was an important achievement. And with control of the House, Democrats are in a position to block Trump's legislative efforts and to conduct investigations into the president's conduct, as well as the activities of Trump appointees in the executive branch, which they increasingly did. And so the 2018 elections also made clear that if the Republican Party is to remain competitive nationally, it must develop a message that appeals to voters outside its current base of older white men in America's small towns and rural areas. The Democrats have built a coalition that includes women, minorities, and young people. It's no accident that the first Muslim and Native American women elected to Congress, along with the first openly gay governor, are all Democrats. The Democratic electorate is growing while the GOP's base represents a shrinking percentage of the national electorate and even of the electorate in rapidly growing red states like Texas, where as formidable a Republican politician as Senator Ted Cruz had to scramble to avoid defeat. Yeah, Ted Cruz in 2018, he only got 51% of the vote against Beto O'Rourke. He did not get an overwhelming majority or a landslide win like he thought he would. So if the Republican Party cannot find a way to expand their constituency, that may be the last time like the red wall can kind of hold back the blue wave.